Well, after several weeks off from the book of Philippians, for those who have recently joined us, this is the series that we've been in since last April when we actually first launched. And we've been making our way verse by verse through Philippians ever since. And for those who are new, a bit of explanation perhaps is in order as to why, why Philippians. If you're going to start a church and you have a first sermon series, why would you choose Philippians? Well, I chose this book as our first study because it captures so well what I long for us to be as a people. I've called Philippians Paul's happy warrior epistle because in it we find a man who has lived now for some time with his eyes fixated on Jesus Christ and his gospel, and he has been completely changed by it all the way down to the marrow of his very being. So much so that the, despite the incredible hardship that he is experiencing, even as he writes Philippians, okay, so, so he is in Roman imprisonment, he is literally on trial for his very life, his life literally hangs in the balance while he's writing this, and we know indeed he would lose his head in Rome. Ultimately, this is not theory. Despite all of that, the overwhelming theme of Philippians is an indomitable joy because of the eternal hope that Christians have in Jesus Christ. Paul says, if I live, fantastic. That means I can do more work for you, Philippians, and continue to encourage you. If they kill me, even better because that means I just get to see my Lord face to face today, then. And as I've said many times, I want Pilgrim Hill to be cut from Philippian cloth. I want us to be a people who love the Lord Jesus with all that we have, who ex have experienced the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, and who are totally convinced of his sovereign present reign over all things. I want us to believe in our bones, that when he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and I give that now to you to go and disciple the nations, that he was serious, and that this gives us confidence and encouragement. I want us to be a people who, like Paul, have an indomitable joy and hope, even through hardship, even amidst the strange godlessness and perversion of our days, because we live with our faces fixed, on that bright, unstoppable horizon of the triumph of Christ's kingdom and the hope that we will be together with Christ forever, like Paul did. So Philippians, I believe, is a good trellis for a young church to grow on initially. And that's why we've given ourselves to a careful study of it thus far. And Today we're continuing on in chapter 3, and since it has been a few weeks, let's get our contextual bearings right off the bat. So we've just got out of a section where Paul has been calling the Philippians to run the race that God has called them to. He wants the Philippians to grow up more and more into the faith, to take hold more and more of what is theirs in Christ through personal sanctification, through fruitfulness. Yes, Paul wants them to have assurance in their standing in Christ, but he doesn't want them to think for a second that means, 
that they have arrived spiritually. Christianity doesn't end with our justification. Rather, according to Paul here, and the scriptures as a whole, our justification is more like a starter's pistol. And our assurance is no sedative, but rather it is wind at our back as we run further up and further in, in the Christian journey, in the pilgrim's progress. As he would write in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3, Paul says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were justified, assuming you have trusted Christ. You were declared righteous. You were declared holy by God. You became a true, full citizen in Christ's expanding kingdom. So your striving in the sense of trying to earn salvation has ceased. So striving in that way has ceased. But we were not immediately made fully fruitful or fully mature. Rather, Paul is explaining that, that Christian maturity, like physical maturity, is a process that unfolds now over the rest of our lives. That's why we remain on earth, because God has work to do in us and through us. We really are his Holy Spirit-empowered agents for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. That's amazing. It seems obvious, but there is always the temptation for mission drift, to forget what God has called us to. So Paul concludes that section in verse 15, where we picked up today, saying, Let those of us who are mature think this way. So namely in terms of running the race with purpose, of, of growing up into greater maturity and greater fruitfulness. That is, mature acting flows from mature Thinking. Those of us who are mature will think this way. Paul reiterates a similar idea in Corinth, writing, and this is 1 Corinthians 14 20. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Now, be infants in evil, be really dumb when it comes to being evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Be mature. Now this call to quote-unquote mature thinking, both in Philippians and Corinthians, are speaking to specific issues. In Philippians, it's about running the Christian race well. In Corinthians, it's in the context of rightly ordered worship. So he's talking about a specific thing that he wants them to think maturely about. But I want to zoom out for just a moment to make some broader observations on the idea of thinking maturely as a Christian. And this will be the first of two points of emphasis in our time today. So we see two practical biblical ways of moving towards greater maturity. And the first one here being the recognition that we are called to think maturely. And I'm talking about the way 
that we engage the actual thoughts, the actual inner dialogue that actually goes on in our heads. So that's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about thinking, I'm talking about thoughts that come into our head, and what do we do with them? So scripture is clear that there is a way to think maturely or immaturely. There is a way to think with the mind of Christ, as Paul says elsewhere, or with the mind of the flesh. So a vital part, then, of Christian maturity that we are being called to involves to learn by the Spirit's empowerment to take control of the life of the mind, learning to think like a Christian. Indeed, in the very next chapter of Philippians, Philippians 4, Paul again will speak directly to this by calling them to set your mind on things above. So that's think maturely, do something on purpose with the thoughts that go in your head. And of course, there are several things that could be said here about what that looks like practically, but I just want to focus on one for our time here. A key component for maturing in our thinking as Christians is understanding the need to talk back to ourselves. It must become normative for us to correct ourselves, to rebuke ourselves, to preach to ourselves. Because all kinds of things come into our minds just automatically. It's not like when you are converted to Christ, all of a sudden your mind is perfectly ordered and thoughts don't just invade. That doesn't, that doesn't stop happening. That still happens. Oftentimes our inner voice is not a Christian at all. Our inner voice is totally godless, totally faithless. Our inner voice is often a complete pagan. And the problem comes is when we forget the power that God has given us to preach truth to lies, even to ourselves. How often do we let the devil or our own unbelief take the reins of our minds with so little resistance? How often do we allow our entire inner world to be ruled by unchecked, unrebuked thoughts or feelings? It's like a toddler has barged into the cockpit of 747 and shoved the pilot out of his seat and took the controls, and the pilot does nothing about it. We need to regain control from the tiny tyrant and say, you are not the pilot of a 747. Sometimes Providence will ask if she can drive up on our driveway, and from time to time I'll oblige, and I'll put her on my lap, and she'll grab the wheel and we'll go. But she's not actually in control, okay? Sorry, Providence, she's sleeping, it's okay, I can, spoiler alert. So anytime she starts to veer, which is constantly, I flex my grip and I keep us on the path. I won't let the immature one steer the car, we'd end up in a ditch every time. And we end up in too many ditches. And so it is with our thinking. When unhelpful, untrue, godless, faithless thoughts come into our minds, we must forcibly recognize it and take back control. For instance, we have seen so many folks, including Christians, become totally ruled by fear over these last two years whether through the cultural or political climate or the ongoing 
COVID stuff. Now, of, of course, I get that there are real concerns, obviously. But we have not been given a spirit of fear. People's lives have entirely, people have stopped going to church because of COVID. These things ought not be. Now, again, I get that there are concerns and each situation is different. But Christians don't stop going to church. That's what the devil wants. That's how the kingdom expands is through the church. We've got to go to church. And of course, the media is eager to agitate our fears as much as they can because fear sells. Fear keeps people glued to screens. Fear makes many people wealthy. But as Christians, as I've said, we have not been given a spirit of fear. Wisdom, of course, but not fear. So whenever the temptation to fear comes from whatever angle, insert what that is for you, we recognize what's happening. Something is trying to usurp the controls in that moment. That's what's happening. And as Christians, we know that the only climate where fear and anxiety can thrive is one bereft of the providence of God. It's like mold can only grow in dark moisture. Fear can only grow in a world where God does not exist. Like Peter on the water, we can only sink when we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus, and we will. But remember, the Lord Jesus took naps during storms because he knew he was sovereign over it. I, can st I could snap, and everything comes under my control because I created it. I'm not, I'm not concerned. And so we need to look, look to Jesus. You know, this idea of affect regulation. You guys are familiar with that? You're child gets hurt, they immediately look to you to see how they should respond. And so we're like, ah, yeah, we're good, you're good. And they're like, okay, well, if you're good, then I guess I'm good. And so that's how it works with Christianity. We look to Jesus. What's your affect? Oh, totally unfazed. Cool. I guess, I guess we're good. So when the fear, the, when you feel the fear well up, which will happen, of course it will, we're human, rather than nursing it, Rather than being driven by it, we want to think maturely like a Christian. We want to speak back to that fear with truth. We take hold of Romans 8.28 with both hands, which says, We know for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. All things. We know this is true. And so we take hold of that. That on the final day when we survey our entire life and we see what he was doing, we wouldn't have changed a thing. That's true. That is true what I just said. We will not change a thing when we see the entire story. And that is so comforting. At least it is to me. We hear again on purpose the comforting words of our Lord Jesus when he says in Matthew 10, speaking to a people who knew oppression and knew great struggle and didn't know when the next meal was coming. He knows, and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. But even the hairs of your head, they're all numbered, so fear not. Therefore, because you are so much more valuable than birds. Yes. 
Thinking maturely means growing in forcibly taking back the reins when they are co-opted by falsehoods. Don't let the toddler steer the car. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great English preachers of the 20th century, he speaks so helpfully into this idea of taking control of our thoughts of what we're calling thinking maturely. So he's commenting on Psalm 42, where we find the psalmist overcome with sorrow, acknowledging that, and then he constantly speaks back to it. The refrain is, hope in God, you will see him again, you will experience him again. So, so this is part of Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Psalm 42, and it is so sweet. And it's, it's an extended quote, but it's pure gold, so just settle in here for a moment. Lloyd-Jones. He says, see, the main trouble in this whole matter is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical here? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now just take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You didn't originate them, but they start talking. And they bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking back. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you now. The main art in the matter of spiritual living, of course, is to know how to handle yourself. You have to, I love this, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you in being disquieted? You must turn on, you must turn on yourself. You must upbraid yourself. You must exhort yourself. You must say to yourself, hope in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and that God has pledged himself to you. That's good. That's good. And this, of course, assumes that we know God, and we know his promises, which we find in his word, which means, we need to know the word, and when a truth from scripture, either in your morning reading or in a sermon, when a truth grabs you, you have to grab it. You have to grab it. You have to go around with a scripture satchel where you grab promises that you deposit in there as weapons of war. For instance, on Friday in our reading plan, we were in Matthew 6, a chapter I've read many times. But as I was going through it, a simple verse that I've read a hundred times, it just hit me right between the eyes with incredible comfort. The Lord Jesus is speaking about prayer and how we don't need to pray eloquently or with many words, just pray normally and honestly. And then in verse 8, he says this, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. For your father, why don't I have to be so clever in my prayers? He already knows. He already knows everything that you need. 
And it just washed over me in such a fresh, comforting way. My heavenly Father knows everything that I need. And he's not hindering you. Because he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And he has already told me his main purpose for my life is conforming me into the image of his son. And only he knows how to do it best. And so I can trust when the chisel hits the marble and I say, ouch, it's conforming me into the image. He knows, he knows how much would change if I believed all the way down that when I'm tempted towards fear, when we're tempted, what is it, fear of inflation right now probably, fear of sickness, fear of losing your job if you're an obvious Christian at work, wherever the fear comes from, Jesus says, your father is totally aware of your needs. Look to him, fear him, and you'll have nothing to fear then. So, let's speak back to lies that come to our mind with truth, whatever they are. Okay, back to the Philippians text now. Verse 15 again, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. So, so even here, God is sovereign over sanctifying our thoughts. So we do this by faith, and he helps us. And then verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So, so battles and sanctification don't stay one. We have to be vigilant. And now we pick up in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And this brings us to our second practical tool for moving towards maturity. First, through thinking maturely, growing in that, and here's second. Paul reminds the Philippians that maturity comes through intentional imitation. In the world God created, we learn and we grow through imitation. We learn and we grow by seeing someone doing something well and then following their example. We inevitably become like those that we surround ourselves with. Whether for good or for ill, we never remain neutral. We're always being tugged in two, one of two directions. We're always moving. And we find this wisdom all throughout Scripture. For instance, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And we all need to hear this, especially the teenagers. He says, do not be deceived, which presupposes you could be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't be deceived. Bad company will ruin your good morals. This is the word of God. Or on the positive, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders and those who spoke to you the word of God. So they know the word, they're reliable guides. And consider the outcome of their way of life. And then imitate their faith. Maturi <clears throat> excuse me, maturity happens, yes, through what is taught. And God is telling us, it happens through what is caught. Just like we need mentors in our jobs, we need mentors in the faith. We need exemplars. Christians whose faith we have seen and we admire. And 
we need to proactively reach out to them and seek them out. Again, look how Paul says it here. He says, join in imitating me. So this means that active discipleship is normative within the Philippian church. So there are, these things are happening. People follow good examples. There are informal mentor, uh, mentorships happening. So, so join in on that. And then he says, keep your eyes. And that word in the original is, is to fix your gaze on. Look intently on purpose Watch carefully to godly examples around them. So who is this person to you? Who is that person that you admire their faith? You've seen the fruit of faithfulness and the faithfulness of Christ. And you say, I want to be like them when I grow up. With Paul, I encourage you. Find someone godly in your life and get around them. Learn from them. Teenagers, what Christians do you admire? Maybe at church or at school? Reach out to them. Get space with them. Get coffee with them. Pick their brain. Ask them questions. Get on their radar and ask them to pray for you. And this will propel your own maturity. I guarantee it. And this verse also reminds us that we need to be looking to set an example to others as well in the faith. Paul says, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. And the church needs more men and women who are aspiring to be able to say that, of course, not that we'll be perfect, but we can be mature and say that. After all, this is the basic thrust of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's the entrance. And then what? Teach them to observe everything I commanded you. So Jesus expects all of us to have an example and to become an example. We all need a Paul and we all need a Timothy. We need someone who is calling us up to greater maturity and we need to be calling others who are less mature up higher as well. And something that scripture commands that is especially needed in our time is being discipled in our specific callings as men and as women. Not, not just generally in godliness, but specifically. We need more mature men to disciple the younger men as what it means to be a Christian man. And we need the more mature women discipling the younger women as what it means to be a faithful Christian woman. Titus speaks directly to this in Titus 2. He says, Older men, you're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, but they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be keepers of their home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Then back to the men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. 
So we have the older men being called to urge the younger men in godly masculinity to be a model of solid work, to be reliable and full of integrity in all of your dealings. So older men, teach us this, please. We have need of it. And we have the older women being called to instruct the younger women in godly femininity. And notice how practical and specific it is. It says, teach them not to gossip or drink too much. Teach them to love their husbands and kids. How to grow in the domestic arts of homekeeping. How to be submissive to their husbands. Now, you don't need me to tell you how much the world despises those verses. And Paul knew that. Paul's not surprised by our culture. Paul knew that just reading those verses in a well-lit room will get you canceled in our time. And that's why he put them there. Because he knew how tempted towards worldliness women and men are. That's why he tells the older women and the older men to teach the younger men and women specifically. And i got to give a shout out here to Mrs. Christy Boomershine. I have personally reaped some of the wonderful rewards of your fulfilling Titus 2 even this week. We all reap it in the communion bread every week, which, did you know this takes multiple days to make happen? This is remarkable. Well, I'm not exactly sure what spell you cast over my wife, but there seems to be fresh bread appearing on our counter every 10 minutes. I've never eaten so much bread in my life than this week, and it's absolutely awesome. Your efforts have caused the Brookshire to rejoice. We thank God for you, sister. Thank you personally for how you've helped our women grow in the domestic arts with such joy and skill and dignity. It is not a small thing. Making bread is making war against a world that constantly belittles the glory of biblical femininity. One practical way that we can pursue this is we have ongoing men's and women's book studies for growing specifically in biblical masculinity and femininity. So we're, we're currently wrapping up our, the studies that we've been in, but we're going to launch out into some new ones in the next couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. And I encourage you, um, jump in, jump into that. This, we're, we're trying to do Titus 2 on purpose in that time. Uh, I'll offer two offerings for the men. Again, I'll get more information out, and I think the women will probably do once a week again. So yes, God has ordained that much Christian maturity comes through imitation, through learning, being humble enough to learn, humble enough to ask, through getting close to saints who are fully submitted to Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ and who fear God and not man or woman. Let's be a people who are maturing together on purpose. Let's together fulfill Hebrews 10.24, which says, Consider how you might stir one another up to love and good works. And in closing, I want to reiterate something which I mentioned at the Christmas Eve servants service, and that is relevant to our text on imitating godly examples. Of course, we just talked about how we do this in actual life, but I believe another vital way we do this is through consistently reading Christian biography. There are a few things that have been such a, a personal encouragement and strengthened my own faith and filled in cracks that I have. Few things outside of Christ, uh, Scripture have been more helpful than reading Christian biography. There is something so orienting and so refreshing about getting outside of our current era and seeing the unbelievable faithfulness of Christian men and Christian women who endured suffering and trials and resistance 
that few people today could even imagine and exalted in the Lord Jesus Christ and grew into gospel granite. So read of the indomitable faith of Elizabeth Elliot. Read of how Christ's love compelled her to go back to minister to the, to the tribe who killed her husband when he was 28. Read of Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, who preached Christ faithfully amidst incredible adversity, such as depression and chronic gout and acute sorrows, who stood strong for Scripture's authority in a time of intense compromise. Read of William Tyndale, the father of the English translation of the Bible, who let his body be burned at a stake for the sake of Christ, because he thought it was so important that Christians could read the Bible in their own language. Under God, we have Christian Bibles because William Tyndale was willing to be burned alive for it. That's just the basic facts of that. You need to know that story. Read of Athanasius, who stood contramundum, which means against the world, because he believed that Jesus Christ was the divine Son of God. And the whole world was against him. And he allowed himself to be exiled numerous times because he said, I will not budge an inch because this matters, and it obviously does. So yes, let us imitate the example of godly, mature saints, both in our lives now and those who have gone before us. And let us continue together to grow up more and more into the head who is Jesus Christ, for the glory of God, for the greater salvation of our city, and for the joy of our grandchildren. May it be, and all God's people said, amen. amen and amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would now take it and you would apply it to our specific areas of temptation, areas of fear, wherever it needs to go. May your word find good roots. Lord Jesus, we know that you said that the enemy even now is seeking to snatch it through distraction, through frustration. I uh, pray that you would resist him and that the soil at Pilgrim Hill would receive the word and would grow into oaks of righteousness together. We pray all these things through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. And amen. And now we'll close praying the way that our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.